Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University's Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. I recently had the chance to speak with Amélie Clotre, who's senior lecturer in law at Kent Law School in the UK. She is author of the new book, Pills for the Poorest, which was published in 2013 by Palgrave Macmillan. The book looks at intellectual property law in Ghana and Djibouti in particular, and it should appeal to anyone who's interested in health disparities and access to medication, interested in anthropology of law, interested in post-colonial studies, or curious about approach to research in science and technology studies called actor network theory. I recently had the chance to talk with uh, Emily Cloach about her new book with a group of students in my class, Medicine on Trial. I hope you enjoy. So thanks so much for joining us today to talk about pills for the poorest, and um, Emily. Uh, and thanks for making time in your evening in the UK to speak with us as well. So as I had mentioned, um, I read the book with students in my course, uh, Medicine on Trial, that looks uh, at law and medicine from social, social and cultural perspectives. And we found your, um, your book to be really uh, exciting and instructive. And I just want to give the students a chance to um, introduce themselves. So they'll just be saying their name one by one. Great. Hi, I'm Paige Kelly. Hi. Hi, I'm Greg Holly. Hi, Paige. Hi, I'm Rachel Heim. Hi. Hi, I'm Bailey Vi. Hi. Great. So that's the five of us. Great. 
So just to um, start off, the book looks at trips, uh, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. And this is an agreement, and it's specifically an international agreement um, that has been created by the World Trade Organization. And part of your interest in it is to see the sorts of um, possibilities that it allows and disallows for access to medicine in different um, in different places and specifically in the cases you're looking at in Africa so the book explores Ghana and Djibouti as two case studies though I think we'll be talking more about um, about your approach using actor network theory a bit farther along but just to start us off, there are a few acronyms and terms that seem important in the book, including TRIPS and yeah. IP. And so could you just give us an overview of what's most essential to know about those terms for listeners? Okay, so what's essential to know about TRIPS? Well, TRIPS is the first um, global agreement that is making intellectual property, which is IP, uh, uniform in some way across the world, basically, or for all members of the WTO. So it's really important because before TRIPS, so before 1995, um, countries around the world had very different ways of thinking about IP, about intellectual property, um, very different strategies depending on their own context, their own expertise, their own priorities, etc. And from then onwards, we have this sort of, of you know, big global agreement that tells everyone how to organize their intellectual property system. So that's the sort of importance of it. Um, in the context of pharmaceuticals, what it means is for the first time, every country that is a member of the WTO, of the World Trade Organization, um, is expected to have to, to grant patents on pharmaceutical products, which is a new thing. So that's the sort of very brief overview, I think, of what, um, what trips and IP are about and why they're important. Was. Okay. And the two places that you look at in particular are Ghana and Djibouti. And it's, um, I especially liked your phrasing, uh, which is that TRIPS is an event that happens in a lot of places. So instead of thinking of it as a, a piece of paper or um, in the abstract as just a legal document, that it's a thing that people do, that things do in all sorts of places. But you're very clear that you are not doing a comparative case study yeah. and um, that you pick up these two countries to explore as a, a study in contrast. So one is in East Africa, the other is in West. One had an elaborated legal system, one had a minimal legal system. One had independence as a colony early, another had it late. Could you... Um, uh, tell us more about the settings in which you were doing this research and how you would want readers and listeners to understand them, not as a comparative study, but as something else instead. Um, well, I think I, I've, yeah, I've tried, as you say, to consistently steer away from, from talking about it as comparison because I don't think I have, I mean, comparative law is a very specific thing. So I think there is a lawyer in me that is sort of making this point that this is not comparative law because it's, it's a very particular technique of thinking about law, actually. But beyond that, even in terms of the, the sort of sociolegal analysis, I did both case studies one after the other with quite a lot of, you know, sort of time between when I started Djibouti and when I finished the, the whole the whole set of research, for example. Um, and 
I don't think so. So my idea was always that, you know, there are two different sets of stories and there may be moments where the two stories overlap. So there may be moments where things look a little bit the same or where Trips is doing something a little bit similar. But actually, to me, there was something more interesting in just providing the reader with those two different stories and letting people make those links. So making people see those relationships where they come up and not see them when they're not there. What I didn't want to do is to, you know, to do what I think we maybe do when we try too hard to make something a comparison, which is to end up reading one through the lens of the other. So reading your sort of data and the sort of story you get in Djibouti through the lens of what you have been told in Ghana. So I try to avoid doing that and just give those two different stories for two places that were, you know, that share the relationship or share the similarity of being in Africa and share the similarity of having the sort of post-colonial history that both both places have and share, as you said, all those sort of, you know, well, maybe maybe some degree of um, of social and economic context, um, but not even that much, actually. And But that at the same time are completely different in terms of culture, in terms of legal, legal culture, in terms of institutional setup, um, in terms of the history in relation to intellectual property. And therefore, comparing them involves too much, too many factors, actually, for it to, to really make sense of, as a direct comparison. So in my head, it's always been two stories that tell us various little bits about trips and various little bits of the sort of event that trips is about and the sort of things that it does. Great. So um, this raises uh, lots of uh, background questions about how you had access to the got access to the field, given um, the two sites, and especially thinking about the language of the law. So you also had the language skills necessary to do the work. And I'm actually just going to hand the the question over to Rachel. Sure. Hi, um, this is Rachel. I just wanted to ask you... um, I noticed that you have a law degree with a specialty in environmental law and a PhD in science and society. And my question really was, what drew you to your international legal studies? Um, How did you become involved in this field? Um, okay, well, that's, that's an interesting, I mean, there's a sort of, of personal story to it. So at, at one level, some of the sort of, of access and why those places, etc., came from my own personal history. I, I grew up partly, I spent some years in Djibouti when I was young, uh, partly because of the, the links Djibouti has with France. So I'm from France originally. Um, I had a father who was a doctor at one point in a hospital that is in Djibouti. So we spent some time there and I had this sort of long-lasting link to the place and this long-lasting interest for Africa, I think, in general. Um, And then I, you know, studied um, my environmental law degree, went on to do a master's in genetics and society, which was looking at the time at um, intellectual property in the context of natural resources and access to genetic resources and carried on doing my PhD in the law school and in an institute for, for science and technology studies in Nottingham. Uh, started the PhD interested in general in those stories about intellectual property, pharmaceutical patents, and a lot of things were written at the time by people about how TRIPS was going to change access. And I was very interested in that. And at the time, a lot was written about India, about South Africa, about a few 
places about Brazil, about a few places that had been already quite vocal in the debates, in the conversations. Uh, so I started like quite a lot of students, I think at the time, looking at those issues, wanting to do a sort of big PhD with a lot of different case studies in those more obvious places, maybe. Um, in the context of doing that, I went back to Djibouti. Yeah, I went to Djibouti for some personal reasons um, early in the PhD and had the chance of talking to a few people. So, you know, I was interested in the issue. I made a few, you know, sort of, of first few interviews with a few people there as, you know, one, one set of interviews amongst others in other places I would use. Um, and the sort of stories I got were so different from everything I had read in the mainstream IP literature at the time that I became really interested not only um, in what it would, what it meant for how we think about law and how we study law, and and the fact that clearly nobody had taken on board the way things may be in a place like Djibouti, but also made me realise that as a case study, as a you know more fleshed out case study, it was a really interesting place um, to work. So I went there. I spent a few months um, doing the field work. Um, access was a sort of, you know, classic snowballing thing where I met a few people who then introduced me to plenty of others. And I think I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, and then having done this one, the Ghana case study um, came up a little bit later. So I did the PhD itself was just my PhD itself was on the Djibouti case study. So it was that, that sort of side of the book. Um, and then I wanted to carry on further looking at other examples in Africa, which would be, you know, maybe less, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe more, um, more high profile in everyday conversations and everyday politics than Djibouti was. Uh, and Ghana was one of those places that is, you know, quite active in international conversations and politics, quite a stable place, quite a defined place in terms of, of how the law is organized. And, and and I made some links with people at the university there, so I had one one of my former colleagues who was based there, and again that's what then enabled me to to gain access um, to gain access there. Um, but that's that's sort of the long story of how the interest in the, the the international aspects of this came up. It was a mixture of you know the personal interest, the interest in the topic, and then the sort of discovery that actually there is there are plenty of places that are very, very interesting to give you this different viewpoint on law. So the overarching uh, concern or underlying concern of the book is the fact that there is such inequitable access to medications um, in various countries and especially um, in Africa. And just one of the the terms that ha- seem to have a precise meaning for you that uh, recurs throughout the book is the idea of um, access to medicine uh, mm-hmm. and various sorts of campaigns. So I'm going to actually hand um, this over to Bailey. Hi. Um, so towards the end of the book, you mentioned the access to medicine campaigns very specifically. Um, I was just wondering if you could sort of expand on what those campaigns actually looked like and how, how they were legal actors that interacted with the pharmaceutical patents in the TRIPS implementation. Mm-hmm. So the Access to Medicines campaign, I mean, there's been, there's been various ways in which Access to Medicine has been talked about for a very long time. So the WHO has been concerned uh, since the 70s with access to essential medicines, for example, essential medicine list. But what, when we talk about the Access to Medicine campaign, which has become the, the sort of... of um, 
uh, quite generally used terms to refer to a group, a different set of NGOs, a, a big set of NGOs, um, was that in the mid-90s, as, um, as conversations about access to eight medicines in particular started coming up, um, a lot of groups, including MSF in particular, who was very, very vocal at the time, and really uh, Meta Sans Frontières, sorry, who was really leading, leading much of this campaign, uh, started making a lot of, um, putting a lot of pressure on governments and making a lot of noise in general about how bad access to medicine was in big parts of the world. Um, where this is interesting in relation to trips is if you look at the history of, of trips, um, in the early days of talking about, you know, pharmaceutical patents, etc., there was so when while trips was being negotiated, and and the history of trips has been explored quite quite well in in um, some some political literature. Um, there's for quite a long time there's very little talk about how trips is going could impact on health and could impact on access to medicines. And towards the mid 90s, as trips kicks in there is already a sort of, of, of movement of access to medicine that's come together and that becomes really galvanized by TRIPS being created and TRIPS existing. So all of a sudden you have a change in international law which is likely to make access to medicines more difficult and you also have a sort of emerging, very organized campaign for medicines that is just, just coming up. Um, and what they do after that is the Access to Medicines campaign spends quite a lot of time and a lot of effort explaining and making it very apparent how international intellectual property rules uh, have suddenly made the life of the poor in developing countries a lot more difficult. And in turn, this is going to have um, various impacts in terms of, of adjusting trips a little bit. So the Doha Declaration in Public Health, for example, is taken in 2001 and, and, and states recognize that public health should be a consideration for IP, etc. And there's various other key moments that, again, I talk about a little bit in the book in which, you know, you see, um, you see trips being talked about quite vocally and, and making the front line news, the sort of headline of news, etc., because the Access to Medicines campaign show how problematic it is. Um, and at the same time, what they've really done in terms of global health strategies um, has been to, to shift quite a lot the focus on what, um, what we should be concerned about when thinking about global health and making access to medicines itself a really key aspect of global health. The, um, the way in which the access to health played out through TRIPS worked, it operated through the creation of different offices by the creation or lack of creation of different kinds of networks. And so I'm wondering if you could just expand on what you take to be the biggest findings in terms of these really counterintuitive consequences that TRIPS had, especially for access and availability of branded medications and how people were actually enacting TRIPS or, or avoiding enacting TRIPS as opposed to generic medications, uh, because it seems like one of the uh, most important and counterintuitive findings that you have is that actually branded um, medicines and access to those pharmaceuticals was much, in many ways, easier and also supported by the, the actors and the material on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the really interesting findings and one of the ones that plays out quite differently, I think, in both countries, so in Ghana and in Djibouti. One of the things that was interesting in Djibouti, um, when I first went out at least, and it has changed a little bit since, was that um, Djibouti never had intellectual property of any form until trips came in and, and trips was, was an issue. Um, so to some extent, Djibouti was the sort of, you know, place where theoretically, and that's what I think IP lawyers um, writing at the time would, would describe or have imagined or imply, um, was the sort of market where you would expect to be able to get any type of generic medicines, any type of non-branded drug should have been able to be sold legally in Djibouti. However, and that's the sort of, of um, counterintuitive thing, the only thing you could find there were branded medicines pretty much. And at the time when I started my research there, the World Bank had various programs to try to push for generic medicine, so try to integrate generic medicines into the health system there, which has started now a little bit. So, in a way, what you saw there was, you know, a market where things were dominated by branded medicine and the sort of push of the access to medicine campaign, even if it wasn't quite directed at a place like Djibouti quite explicitly, and, and even if the problem wasn't defined at the time in terms of making access to generics um, possible where it didn't exist before, uh, it was more a matter of maintaining it in places that were highly reliant on generics, if that makes sense. Um, then all of a sudden this country was seeing and has seen since generic medicines being more broadly used. Um, in Ghana, what was interesting, and, and that's, you know, there's, there's so many things in those stories and so many different factors that come in, actually. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting is that although Ghana has been really, the government has been pushing for generic medicines to be increasingly used over there and to be, you know, sort of, of embraced by both public and private health systems there. Um, that a lot of people were resistant to it, and that's something that we find anywhere. You know, we find in, in European markets or everywhere the sort of resistance to um, generics and preference for branded medicine and wariness of generics, etc. Um, but in context where these are particularly important for the affordability of drugs and, and for the possibility of people to get them and hospitals to buy them, etc., it's more of a problem. And, I mean, there's, there's plenty of reasons for um, why that is, and I probably can't confirm them all up, um, here, but, but one of the reasons for that was that, um, that people are extremely worried, or people were extremely worried in Ghana about counterfeit medicines. So, again, there's another set of legal conversations and legal discourses that go around about, you know, that... that um, revolve around what, what is a counterfeit and how do pharmaceutical companies play with those terms sometimes, etc. Um, but one of the outcomes would be that people who often didn't have really clear expertise in differentiating what is a branded medicine, what is a generic, what is a counterfeit, would take anything that wasn't the main brand as being potentially dangerous because it could be a counterfeit. And that became that that was a real problem because it meant that actually generic were not used and cheap medicines as a result were not um, not bought and imported by pharmacists and by others as much as they should maybe be. Um, and when they were, there was already there was some differences between how people thought of generics made in the UK and generics made in India, for example, which were the sort of two comparisons people gave and um, gave me quite a lot. So all this is interesting for me because. 
you know, we tend to think about these relationships between IP, between the Access to Medicines campaign, and between what the market will look like as fairly straightforward. And actually, there's plenty of messiness in what will determine in the end what medicine, you know, makes its way in there or not. Um, and lots of things that mediate what it is that does that. I mean, one sort of easy way of... of um, one fairly straightforward thing would be to say, well, you know, it's easy. Actually, the brands make their way there because the pharmaceutical industry is powerful enough to make it happen. And that's a shortcut in a way to some of the stuff that are going on there. But my argument in the book is that it's useful to also try to unpack a little bit more carefully how that happens. So even if in the end, yes, it is that the pharmaceutical industry have got their products there, there are plenty of other things that make them able to do it. And not just the fact that they're powerful, but also the way the buying of medicines works in those places. Yeah, the production of the markets that you dwell on um, so nicely in the chapters. Uh, it's really interesting to think about the the use and um, the place of generics versus branded medicines and the elision of um, generics and counterfeits, mm-hmm. especially reading against uh, historian of medicine Jeremy Green's recent work on yeah. generic medicines in particular. Um, out of curiosity, do you have any thoughts on, on uh, the story that develops in other sorts of case studies? Um, no, and I haven't. I mean, it's interesting because actually, you know, the... the the question of counterfeit medicine itself is one that I find really fascinating and on which there isn't that much um, that has been. And there's some really good stuff on generic medicine and Jerry McGuinn's work is, is an example of that. One thing, I re- one um, book I really enjoyed reading that touches on some of those things um, recently is Christine Peterson's book on the pharmaceutical markets of Nigeria, um, for which I... Uh, what's the title? Um, uh, the title is case me now. Speculative Markets, I think. Um, in which she looks, so she looks at the way the pharmaceutical market of Nigeria is made, and in there there's plenty of stories around those fake medicines, and and she does this really nice thing of of also trying to move away from the easy narrative, which would be to say, well, this is something that is, you know, as it is because of criminals who buy the dangerous drugs and give them, and give back a little bit to those markets the complexity of it and the complexity of the legal gains that are at play, and and of the intentional and non-intentional gains that are at play, and. Um, in there, so that is, you know, that is one thing I found really interesting in terms of the counterfeit thing. And then there's some really rich thing, yeah, in the, you know, on on work around around generic medicines, around notions of bioequivalence and sameness, etc. The work that um, Corey Hayden does on generic medicines is also fascinating for that. Um, but it's interesting the sort of, you know, breaking down what what are counterfeits and and how the different narratives that the pharmaceutical industry may be giving about what counterfeit is um, as, you know, something that is always dangerous, but then at the same time you have those statistics that mix up counterfeit as being the dangerous and the ones, the the drugs that are only in breach of IP, etc., etc. There's lots of things going on there that mean that, you know, the sort of very blurry legal definition of what a counterfeit drug is doesn't quite and and the sort of general imaginary of how those networks work and what those drugs do and how they work so what they they do socially i mean in terms of of helping you determine what drug to take or not to take etc and is extremely complex really interesting and there isn't that much that brings that out that i'm aware of at the moment it would be nice to see more more on that Hmm. in addition to uh branded medicines 
uh, counterfeits and also generics, there's the additional backdrop um, that matters and also doesn't matter uh, depending uh, on the the way the networks have been elaborated, the markets were elaborated in these different settings, um, which is the the just the backdrop of alternative medicines. And so here I'm going to yeah. hand it over um, to Paige. Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, so I was curious about. Um, your discussion of traditional medicine um, in Ghana. And Mm -hmm. at one point you mentioned that Western medicine has historically been an agent of imperialism in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that and maybe give some examples of how this um, tradition of imperialism has affected um, medicine and the practice of medicine in these countries and also um, the, how patents kind of play into that as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, traditional medicine is something I'm really interested in and, and I'm looking at a little bit more, more closely now, actually, but it's one of those things that I had to almost actively keep being being wary of during my study because, you know, I had to, to keep the focus somewhere and the focus was on patents and actually that was a... Um, you know, and, and on patents and on access to, to so-called modern medicine. So, um, but it's really, really interesting, and it's something I really want to go back to now. Um, I mean, Ghana is one one of the many places where people rely. I think you know, officially, like the sort of, of statistics you find is something like seventy percent or something like that of their healthcare needs and um, through traditional healers. So that's always a very big part of any sort of choices people have of how they will. Um, they will address the health problem is always mediated by this, this very traditional reliance on, on traditional healer and, and plants, etc. Um, what's interesting for me in those in particular is that quite often, so, you know, quite often you'll have, including, including some of the doctors there, um, who will who will be really dismissive actually, who were quite dismissive of traditional medicine as being something that, you know, people believe in but has no relevance or is not interesting or is not important for health, etc. And I think there's some very interesting, much more interesting analysis um, of of traditional medicine that can be done once you start acknowledging the the things, the, the postcolonial history that makes people um, people being driven away from modern medicine and stick to a particular type of tradition that that they they've embraced and they've been used to, etc. And so, you know, the whole sort of history of health systems in places like like Djibouti and like Ghana is very very heavily marked by um, by by the remnants of colonialism, and and that's in Djibouti that is extremely visible in the sense that. A lot of the healthcare structures are really built around what they were when France was was officially um, officially running the place. It's a little bit less obvious in Ghana, but but those marks um, those marks are still there because because medicine was such an important tool of imperialism in general. So there's a, a lot of really interesting um, books that have been written on that. One of my one of my um, favorite analysis of how how the wariness of, of medicine and of science finds its root in um, in, in colonial history is in um, Didier Sassan's book on um, on the AIDS controversies in South Africa, when bodies remember, um, in which he gives, you know, the sort of a, a very careful... Um, a very careful reading both of the history but also of how far the sort of wariness of um, modern healthcare system um, 
can be can be reread or can be read through through colonial histories. And so, to me, traditional medicine is interesting and complex, and interesting and complex in both contexts because it's more than people just choosing because they don't know better, so to speak, which was a bit the line that some of the doctors would come with. But it's also um, is also an active choice of you know, resistance or rejection of something. Um, and it's also very importantly something that is always mediated by what the modern healthcare system looks like. So, you know, if your choice is having to um, to camp outside a hospital for a whole night before you have a chance of being seen or going to your traditional healer who will make you feel better somehow a little bit, even if not as much or whatever, then those choices are not, not as clear as we might want to imagine. Um, in relation to patents, unfortunately, and that's why that's why I kept you know I kept that a little bit to the side in that particular project. It's not necessarily immediately relevant in terms of access. In my sense, where it becomes relevant, and a lot of people have written about it, is in terms of of what what becomes an invention that can be patented or not. So you have a lot of stories around bioprospecting, access to um, genetic resources, and how in turn some um, um, some inventions can be derived from traditional medicine um, that becomes industrialized, patentable, make money, etc., without the money necessarily being um, being returned or being part of, of what, what traditional healers themselves may benefit from. One of the I think most innovative um, things that the book does is actually to investigate all of these questions about patents, not by starting with the objects, the medicines themselves, but to start with trips within with this, what would just seem to be an international agreement and then show how it's not only a text, it's also material. It's an event, it's a practice, it's a discourse. Um, And, in terms of it being a technology, you mean this in the way that Bruno Latour does, which is that it comes with a whole set of expectations of what comes next or what the effect should be in different settings. And what your book nicely shows is that the effects are often other or simply non-existent um, than one might expect. So the the way that you're able to show this is in using actor network theory, which for listeners who are unfamiliar with it, um, should just be able to regard it as a very specific methodological tool for science and technology studies. And I'm wondering if you could make a case or advocate for why actor network theory was a useful uh, tool to use for your research, um, any shortcomings you see with it, uh, but also why in looking at different forms of um, connection in different sites, it can prove useful. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's, it's something that I'm still, you know, it's a sort of... of um, of um, almost constant theme of, of reflection in general because it's a type of approach that I'm still I tend to use in general in my research and, and I find very helpful but I'm sort of you know constantly pondering on, on the how and why and what other approaches are useful as well and, and complementary um, one of the things in this particular case that I found extremely helpful with this is that it was one of the methods or one of the strategies that gave me the most the, the biggest flexibility in terms of how I could be thinking about law 
And, and in particular in high, could be thinking about the messiness of law, which is something we don't do very much. So we like to think about law as something that has cause and effects and that those effects may be disrupted and they may be resistant, they may be things. Um, but nonetheless, there is something often assumed to be relatively ordered and predictable in the law. And in this case study, this was broken down at almost every level in terms of how the law didn't work sometimes, in terms of the law doing things that it was never supposed to do, in terms of, you know, various bits of law clashing with each other in ways that people were not anticipating, and in terms of, of the sort of, of almost social rewriting of what the law was doing, etc. So, so as an approach, it's something that, you know, claims to almost put back everything, you know, the sort of flat ontology, everything is back on the same level field, and then you make sense of that messiness and that disorder as you go through. And so that was always an angle that was particularly, particularly interesting to me. And I mean, one of the big things about actor network theory is always its emphasis on materiality and thinking about, you know, the role of materials and the place of materials and in social relationships. And that's something that is extremely interesting to me. So that plays a part. But at the same time, to me, the materiality is, you know, one, one way in which, um, what the actor network theory does that I think is more important and more radical and becomes very visible in. And, and, and that thing, to me, the, the main um, claim or the main thing that the NT does is the question of destabilization of the social. So it's really assuming that nothing is stable to start with and that there are no you know, set concepts that you're going to use as a fixed thing and that are going to give you the answers, that there is nothing that is going to be fixed in time or fixed in place, that even when trips is signed and is a thing and is you know, a written law, actually it's plenty of different things wherever it goes. And every time it's used, every time it's, um, it's performed, it becomes something else and it does something different. So to me, that's really where it is. And, and there are other, you know, other approaches within legal studies and with science and within science and technology studies, within anthropology that are really helpful as well as a sort of, of complementary to this. Um, but this is one way of, of, you know, thinking about things not being stable and things not being fixed. And for me, in the context of law, where we tend to really have, in spite, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, critical approaches to law, um, but even within this context, you know, this idea that law is something we set boundaries um, that we can imagine that people understand in a particular way that has effects is um, is very hard to move away from. And to some extent, for me, one of the big strengths of ANT and of Latour's work in general is to enable us to do that, to, you know, move away from it being anything we have imagined as a fixed thing before and becoming something, you know, quite fluid and, and changing. And the shortcomings, I mean, there's, there's um, a number of things that um, that have traditionally been, been picked on and talked about um, in actor network theory or as critiques of actor network theory. One of the questions is always has, has been traditionally one of the critiques has been that actor network theory is not political enough. So it doesn't, you know, it's, it's descriptive. So the sort of key strategy is fairly detailed ethnography of what you know what what's there. So it's descriptive at one level and one of the critiques has been that it's not political enough, which is one one critique I, I try to disagree with. And to me actually the very careful description of messiness it gives you enables a, a very important form of critique and to make the politics apparent. Um, one difficulty 
with the ENT still is to reconcile because of this idea that nothing is ever fixed and things change quite a lot. Um, is its relationship to, um, for example, postcolonial theory or to, to historical events? So how do we, if we're going to assume that everything is unstable, how do we then reconcile this with the fact that something are perpetuated over many years and that some scars are carried in postcolonial context, for example, and that some things persist? Again, to me, this is something, to some extent, we can, we can um, build on, basically. So I think it's not there in a lot of the, the sort of earlier actor network theory writing. It's not really there, but I think actually it's not a problem necessarily with the sort of core ideas of the, the methods or the theory. And I think it's maybe something that wasn't, wasn't there in some of the writings, but we could develop further and think about further. So, you know, your question doesn't become, well... You know, um, your, your question then becomes to almost explain through description how certain things are made to persist um, while others haven't and why it is that certain particularly violent, violent events of the past continue to leave traces and to be there in the present, etc. You should that um, documenting messiness uh, can itself be a form of critique. And I think the book especially nicely shows how actor network theory even if it has been um, treated with a bit of suspicion in, in a few specific fields, could be useful, and in particular, as you had said, to post-colonial studies, um, to legal studies, and then simply to um, to health studies and people interested in health inequalities. And I think the book itself is a, a fantastic example of that. Uh, but we'd wanted to ask about the possible limits of messiness, and here I'm going to hand it over to Greg. Hi. Um, so my question really relates mostly to chapter six and really in relation to the case study on AIDS in Djibouti and Ghana. And just the fact that chapter six really brings forth some of the shortcomings of international bodies, such as the Global Fund or the World Bank, um, in terms of not just healthcare delivery, but also the sustainability of healthcare delivery and access to medicines. And so I was wondering if this book in any way sort of advocated more for primary health care or maybe primary health care through generic medicines rather than the very selective health care targets such as antiretrovirals mm -hmm. that really seem to be put forth by some of these international bodies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I think I'm not sure I'm not sure the book is advocating for a particular type of health strategies, actually. I think to me what's more important is that one of the, the sort of, of repeated criticism that was made um, of global health strategies and global health policies was really about the hows rather than the what's. So at one level it was well people so people in Djibouti say were critical of the you know, the AIDS project because it was too much money for something they didn't have the possibility of, of dealing with at that moment, etc. etc. Uh, compared to other things, so for plenty of quite carefully articulated reasons as to you know where else the money could have gone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know there were critics of that, but beyond and in Ghana similarly, you know there were various strategies that were unpacked and criticised as being a waste of time or a waste of of money or a waste of resources. 
But the sort of underlying thing um, beyond all this repeatedly was about how little say they had in those strategies. So how little say local actors had in determining how those strategies were going to to be put together and then to unfold. So if the book is advocating anything, it's really just advocating at that very basic level that those strategies need to be designed very closely in collaboration with you know, what local actors know better of of the local situations. Um, You know, in terms of of what the strategies may be, again, I think this was quite varied in in both contexts and also depending on which different people um, we were talking about or I was talking to. Um, But I think the sort of constant thing that they were critical of was the sort of one-size-fits-all Things that you know, this is the priority at the moment. So here is where all the money is going, and here is how we're supposed to be doing it. And and um, and and I think that is that is a really big problem. I don't think it's specific to the health field. So I think we see that in a lot of other development projects, and it's quite a common critique in in development studies. And you know, the sort of disempowerment of local actors in the face of global strategies. But I think we see, you know, yeah, we see that quite a lot in other places, but it was very, very visible in this case. Well, we've um, taken more than um, enough of your time and are so grateful for it. And I just want to really encourage people to have a chance to look at the book who are interested in access to medicine um, and also interested in approaches to studying the law, to studying medicine, to post-colonial studies in general uh, that might consider using actor network theory. Um, So thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else that you want to add just to wrap up? With the big no, no, the thank book. you very much. I think this was this was really interesting, and I hope you know. I hope um, my answers made some sense. It's always really interesting to talk to people about this, and like many things, you know, there's a lot of, of you know sort of almost ongoing work in progress in the thinking about you know about how we approach those topics. And for me, this is you know the sort of, of things that are um, left over from it, and that I'm going to be to be still thinking about in the. the time to come are those questions about about what actor network theory tells us about you know how we can think about it what else you know how we capture this messiness of law more generally and also at the same time going back to those questions about traditional medicine and how that adds another dimension to to those complicated stories so i hope it was helpful and thank you very much i very much enjoyed um, the conversation thank you 